Hello, this is episode 14 of the Commercial Awareness Podcast. Before I begin, I'd like to announce that the Commercial Awareness Podcast now has an Instagram page. You can find it by searching ComAwarePod, that is C-O-M-M-A-W-A-R-E-P-O-D. Please follow to be involved with updates and discourse such as Q&A sessions, comments, debates with other listeners about topics, and an alternative way to suggest subject areas or topics. So please follow the podcast username ComAwarePod on Instagram. With that out of the way, here are the headlines. Choice Hotels International, Hyatt, and four other major hotel chains must face a class action alleging that they conspired to stop competitive bidding for the coveted sponsored slots at the top of Google and Bing results pages, a federal judge ruled. Defendant hotels in the cases are getting advice from firms including DLA Piper, Hogan Lovells, Wheel, and Latham and & Watkins. Most corporate legal departments have been slow to implement formal e-discovery training, including large organizations in highly regulated and litigation-heavy industries, according to a recent survey report. A new statement signed by 65 top lawyers from major companies in the UK and Europe urges law firms to try harder to improve diversity of their legal staff. In a follow-up from episode 13, but on the civil side of the case now, Google LLC, advised by Cooley, has agreed to pay $11 million to disgruntled users of its AdSense advertising service under a class settlement that won final approval last week. As we've spoken about the Deutsche and Commerce Bank potential merger for a number of episodes, Italian lender Unicredit is preparing a rival bid for Commerce Bank should the Deutsche Commerce Bank talks break down. The Citizens Advice Bureau has reported a sharp rise in people seeking help after bailiffs have threatened aggressive debt collection methods, with the number at over 103,000 bailiff-related problems in the last year. Herbert Smith Freehills, Hogan Lovells, Mayor Brown, PwC, Sherman and Sterling, Simmons and Simmons, Slaughter and May, and Travis Smith have joined the Reignite Academy, a program to help lawyers that took a break to come back into practice. This is similar to the Law Returners program mentioned in Episode 4. E-signature company DocuSign said it is investing $15 million into legal tech company Seal Software, which makes an artificial intelligence-based contract analytics and discovery tool. That means Seal Software has raised about $58 million. Tottenham Hotspur have reported a world-record pre-tax profit of £138 million, beating Liverpool's record of £125 million last year. The SRA has revealed plans to ask an initial 400 firms to demonstrate their compliance with money laundering rules. And finally, in a follow-up from episode 5 of the podcast, Mike Lynch is currently a defendant in the UK's largest civil fraud trial as he is facing accusations from HP for, quote, deliberate fraud over a sustained period of time, end quote, by artificially inflating revenue and profit margins leading to Autonomy's acquisition by HP. HP are suing Lynch and Autonomy's former finance director, Sushavan Hussein, for $5 billion. And now, the longer reads. The first of the reads is that two former Barclays employees have been sentenced for their roles in rigging the Eurobor between 2005 and 2009. Before I go any further, some of you may be asking, what is Eurobor? It stands for the Euro Interbank Offered Rate. Put simply, Eurobor is the average interest rate banks in Europe use to lend to each other 
and is based on submissions by 23 banks as to what their interest rates would be. These submissions are averaged to help make for an easier calculation of interest between banks and eventually some consistency down to consumers like you and I. A new rate is published daily at 11.02 a.m. CET. Up to 160 trillion euros of financial products are linked to Eurobor. The two former Barclays employees in question, Carlo Palombo and Colin Birmingham, would submit false rates with the intention of manipulating the Eurobor rate with the aim of benefiting the position of certain traders. Between 2005 and 2009, which is when the Eurobor fraud took place, Palombo made £5.4 million and Birmingham made £3.5 million. Judge Michael Gledhill, passing the sentence at Southwark Crown Court, said the sentences intend to send a, quote, clear message of deterrence, end quote, to those in the banking and financial sector, but also criticized the compliance regimes at banks, as senior managers should have been able to know what was going on. Two other traders, one from Deutsche Bank and one from Barclays as well, were convicted last year for 13 years in total. These sentences are probably another nail in the coffin for the concept of the average interest rate, as there have been similar revelations about LIBOR, or the London Interbank Offered Rate, and calls to no longer rely on the honesty of bankers to determine these rates as they leave room for manipulation. If you have any interest in banking or are keen to find further understanding uh, of these concepts, I'll provide links explaining what LIBOR is and what it's used for, and from that it will be quite easy to translate what Eurobor means. Credit for this story goes to Barney Thompson. The second read is that accountancy giant Ernst & Young, or EY, is in talks to acquire Thomson Reuters' managed legal services business in an attempt to bolster its law offering. According to the lawyer, negotiations are taking place and a conclusion is expected to be reached by June. If it goes through, it would be EY's second new law acquisition in a year after acquiring Riverview Law in August of 2018. This on its own is just another story about the big four and what they're doing to disrupt and change the traditional legal service, but developments like this beg the question as to how much longer the big four may be permitted to do this. I say this after a cross-party committee of MPs have responded to the recent accounting scandals by calling for a full-scale breakup of the big four. This is a recommendation preceding its final proposals on the audit market in a few weeks, going much further than what the Competition and Markets Authority proposed in December for an operational breakup of the Big Four, which would require KPMG, EY, PwC, and Deloitte to legally separate their audit staff from the rest of their businesses. This cross-party committee has also expressed fears that the Big Four have created an oligopoly, which has resulted in audits that the public cannot rely on. The Big Four have attempted to earn trust back, with EY and PwC, for example, announcing in January that they would stop providing non-essential consulting to clients in the FTSE 350 index by 2020, and KPMG having made a similar announcement last year. The concerns by the cross-party committee have some validity, to be fair, especially after they highlighted that 27% of the audits of FTSE 350 companies it reviewed did not meet quality standards. This is troubling considering that the Big Four audit 97% of the FTSE 350 companies. In conclusion, it is interesting to see the Big Four take strides in becoming the one-stop shop for clients, but if more accounting scandals mount, we must truly ask more questions about conflict, quality, and trust in the accounting firms. Credit for this story goes to Cristiano Dallabona of The Lawyer and Madison Marriage of The Financial Times. And now the final read. And in this final read, I don't mean to spend too much time on it, 
as this episode is already longer than all the other episodes, but Uber's drivers have been given permission to bring a racial discrimination lawsuit against Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London. This is in relation to a congestion charge that would become payable as of the 8th of April, which would require Uber drivers, minicabs, and other private hire drivers, but not black cab drivers, to pay a daily fee of £11.50 during weekdays to drive in London. The Independent Workers' Union of Great Britain, the group representing private hire drivers, has argued that this amounts to racial discrimination, as 88% of black cab drivers are white, and 94% of private hire drivers come from minority ethnic backgrounds. The union also claimed that this would reduce private hire drivers' yearly earnings by £3,000 on average, but leave black cab drivers unaffected. This is another episode in the saga of the proliferation of ride-hailing apps versus the traditional hackney carriage. It also feels like an allegory, illustrating a conversation to be had in many industries about innovation and obsolescence, as to become a black cab driver requires a series of knowledge testing about the roads that has arguably been rendered relatively irrelevant as a result of navigation apps and readily available smartphones on any passenger and driver. It is also worth noting that Uber is developing self-driving cars to eventually render the human driver obsolete. I therefore want to close on a number of questions. I ask that you, the listener, consider whether the Uber drivers have a case here, and on a larger scale, what we should do in response to innovation. Adapt or gatekeep? Do you even see the congestion fee as gatekeeping, and how should this matter be resolved? The two-day trial will begin on the 9th of July. Credit for this story goes to Kay Wiggins. This has been episode 14 of the Commercial Awareness Podcast. Once again, a reminder that there is now an Instagram page that you can follow. The links for all of the stories will be in the description. Please rate, share, and subscribe. Thank you for listening.